Get excited, Emerging Cricket fans. We have a heap of content for you this week. News of Plenty Part 2 with Paul Bradley. And we've also caught up with a certain Dutch fast bowler after his tweet went viral this week. But first, a shout out to those who support us on Patreon. From as little as $2 US a month as a patron, you can access bonus content at Emerging Cricket and have a say on the show's direction. To sign up, log on to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Emerging Cricket. Plenty to discuss this week. Let's get straight into it. Hello and welcome again to the Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM. I'm Daniel Bezik and with me at the Emerging Cricket table, I'm once again joined by the rest of the pod crew. First up in Brisbane, Tim Cutler. Tim, how's things? Oh, off my guard again. You came to me first. I don't, what did I do to, to earn your love this much to come to me? No, nah, I'm just saving the best till last. Sorry. Oh, there's a there's a song there I could sing. Vanessa Williams, but I won't. Um <laughs> That's a great movie, Eraser. Get back there, her and Arnie. <laughs> I'm okay. Keep on keeping on. Danielson, you? Yeah, not bad. Uh, flat out as always, but nothing really changes there. We're on the uh, final stretch of uh, WBBL 06. Uh, been enjoying it, albeit with the extra preparation late in the, uh, well, the early morning. But apart from that, yeah, I'm good. Slowly catching up on sleep from Monday to Wednesday and then unleashing. Well, we, we joked about uh, Sammy Joe Johnson stats. What, what's the most left field stat you've been asked to come up with by the commentators thus far? Oh, good question. I've got one at the moment where I'm trying to compile bowlers bowling long T20 spells. And by long, I mean three or four overs. Uh, I had one the other day, which was, which it was actually quite a good idea, actually, from Lisa Stalaker. And she wanted to know what the... Good name drop there, by the way. It was good. <laughs> oh, yeah. My mate, Lisa Stalaker. Yeah, exactly. She was texting me at midnight. Get me to do stats. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is that is something that happened. Um Wanting to know what the run rate and the wickets lost were in the 11th over of every innings, the over after the drinks break, which I thought was actually a really good idea because... Hmm, topical. Yeah, you don't really know what to do in that in that over coming back in. Is that Lisa getting ahead of the game thinking about these new BBL rules, thinking about the half the half-time score? <sighs> the half-time score for a point to see where, where they're at? Or was it specifically, was it after 10 or was it during the 11th? Yeah, I would love to know. I still haven't got official word from the tournament in regards to what happens if there's rain in the BBL. And we know that rain has been prevalent in the WBBL this year and it also affected the Women's T20 World Cup and it affected the BBL final last year. I'm, I'm pretty sure if my memory serves me correctly. So I guess at any stage, they just sort of put a mark in the map and do a DLS score when it stops. But how do you work back from a DLS score? If you're chasing a, a target in 20 overs and you're in the 11th and it starts pouring down rain, you know, you win or you lose, but do they work back and see where you were at the 10 over stage and see whether you're, that's a hard one, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not too sure what they're going to do. I also have all these power play ideas that I had for BBL 10 now thrown out the window with the four over fielding restrictions plus the, the extra two overs that the batting team can take whenever they want. That's going to be interesting. And just two extra players to worry about in the in the teams now with the uh, X-Factor players to uh, factor in as well. So from a work point of view, I can't say I'm, I'm, I'm particularly loving what's about to be uh, on my desk. But look, if it, if it helps the tournament, then I suppose it's a, it's a go. Anyway, uh, the third member of our Emerging Cricket podcast Better known on Twitter as Copernicus Cricket, Nick Skinner. 
Nick, how are you? I'm all right. I'm I'm very happy to talk about the Big Bash. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, went to the uh, the games at North Sydney with one of our friends, Rod Lyle. That was fun. Managed to see Meg Lanning hit a fifty and look just miles better than anyone else. So yeah, I'm I'm happy to go in all in on Big Bash chat. Oh yeah, another fun fact: Meg Lanning uh, completed WBBL bingo, made fifty against every single opposition. She's good, isn't she? She was able to do that because she's switch between the Scorchers and the Stars. She needed a 50 against the Scorchers. Mm. So none of the Sixers can do it because they've never played against themselves. I think there's a couple of others that can potentially do it. But speaking of Big Bash cricket, we do have an associate cricketer <laughs> Good pivot. signed Good for pivot. a Big Bash League team. Sandeep Lamachane has been announced as the last Hobart Hurricanes signing for BBL 10. Uh, that was provided by the Hurricanes team in a press release yesterday. Uh, interestingly enough, though, he's only available from the start of January. We're not too sure what the reasoning is behind that. Maybe it's about him getting out here in Australia in time and then doing his 14 days quarantine. My estimate, he would have to be in Australia by the 26th of November if he wanted to play the first game. But yeah, according to the official word from the Hurricanes, he's not available till January. I think the, the, the Nepalis, uh, the, the fans all around the world who support Nepal were, were quite relieved. It looked as if there for a minute, Tim, he wasn't going to get picked up at all. He didn't play a game in the IPL for Delhi, but it's a great result in the end. A new team, a new look Hurricanes team, and, and he's the frontline spinner there once he does eventually reach Hobart. Yeah, I think I saw a friend of mine, Nerdy, nerdy Stats Man on Twitter, I think that Beswick or something his name oh, yeah. is, say that uh, he's got the uh, second best numbers for a leg spinner, and that's behind Adam Zampa, who is... He's not too shabby. Look, he's been great for the Stars. I'm not sure what precipitated this, whether the Stars released him or whether the Hurricanes came came a knocking. But um, great. I'm just. I was thinking today. Is like, is that a better call? Like, I, I guess the uh, the schedule for the Big Bash could change at any moment, anyway. So. Yeah. So trying to think, talk about which grounds I'll be playing on is is moot at the moment. Um, but playing on that. Bell Reeve pitches, they get it going on with some of those short boundaries, maybe a bit of a challenge, but you never know. But, um, you know, that, and the options that opens up as well with Zahir moving, I think that basically uh, makes him number one spinner there, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I did a little bit of a look over the past couple of days. I've got a young leggy by the name of Will Parker, who's only 18, so I doubt that he'll be the frontliner. And then they've got two part-time wrist spinners in, Darcy Short, who we know is capable, and, and Mac Wrightbowl's leg spin as well. So he'll be leading the line, yeah. Which is great. And he was coming in, well, I guess next to Zampa, he had his role to play at the at the Stars, but I think that's a great opportunity for him to take a role similar to what he does for Nepal. But we'll see how he responds to that because sometimes your, your leggy might have to come on the power play depending how things go. But um, I guess to see how the strikers use Rashid and holding him back, I quite enjoy how they do that. You can see the batters sort of getting through the overs almost. You can feel it, you know, that they're, they're oh, quick. You know, we've got to get as many as we can before Rashid comes on and then just play him out to see which role Sandeep plays. So, yeah, like you said, didn't get any game time in the IPL. But, look, there's, there's nothing like game match practice to get you into form. But, look, he would have pulled enough in the nets, I think. He's, he's not going to be out of form. It's more just coming to Australia, being in, in the bubble and how he copes with that again in, a, in another foreign place. So for his sake, we hope he, uh, he gets up for it and uh, should be exciting for the Hurricanes. 
Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, filling a role in the same way as he does for Nepal and the small boundaries at Bell Reef is that's that's quite common in associate cricket is having those small boundaries and you know, I think that can often work well for a spinner having, you know, the batsman their eyes light up, they think, "Oh, yes, I'm going to smash this for six everybody." But then you just you just need to get it past them a little bit and the sort of almost the lure of the boundary does some of the work for you in in tricking them. So I, I think that could work for him. Yeah, looking since his debut in December 2018, only Adam Zampa had a better strike rate and economy as a leg spinner than Sandeep. So his numbers do stack up. And yeah, the traveling roadshow of the BBL this year, we're not too sure where everything will end up. But tournament, the, the BBL starts on the 10th of December. The Hurricanes actually do have the first game of the tournament. They play the Sixers there. Sandeep won't be available for that. But to talk about Nepal some more, we've got a little bit more information in regards to who will be coaching the national team for their next fixtures. We're not actually sure when those fixtures will be. They are still slated to have their Cricket World Cup League 2 series in February next year. That hasn't been officially cancelled or postponed as yet. Uh, A few names that have been thrown around across social media, and we've had some official word about some of them. Uh, Dav Watmore, whose last job was with Singapore. Pabuda Dasanayaka to return, potentially couple of other names from full member countries have been thrown into the mix. Uh, we have mentioned their requirements for this role on multiple occasions. Where do we see this going, Nick? Uh, I'm looking at, at someone like Watmore or Pabudu returning, but it looks to be a pretty open field at this point. Yeah, I think either of those guys would be a good choice. They both have very impressive coaching records. Pabudu obviously has, has had a lot of success with Nepal in the past, so I think personally he'd probably be the front runner if they can get him back and you know the fact that he he was taking on a um a domestic coaching role in Nepal as well perhaps would indicate that he was trying to you know dip his toes into Nepali coaching again and and maybe get back to the national team obviously uh, when he was doing his first stint there, I think it was about four years between 2011 to 2015, maybe, and and they went up from Division Four all the way up to the World Cup qualifier, which was you know very impressive, and and obviously the T20 World Cup where they only just missed out on qualifying for the the main event as well. So you know very good uh, record, and and I think he'd be the guy to go with. But yeah, some big names in the hat that we've seen, and some perhaps a slightly left field ones as well. Tatenda Taibu's name floated around in, in some news reports as well and a couple of other test playing coaches. You know, I'm a bit suspicious of this, you know, the, the obsession with, you know, you must be a full member coach. I don't necessarily buy that a full member coach is going to be better than an associate coach. And indeed, as we've discussed in the past, sometimes having that full member experience means that you you don't know what to do when you come into the very different situation of an associate cricketing nation. So yeah, I think Pabudu is probably the the safest pair of hands if if I'm the one choosing. Oh, I agree, Nick. Unless there's something behind the scenes that that we're not not aware about, but he left there with glowing reviews and then did. Great things with USA as well. And if we want a coach who has the runs on the board, sorry for the cliche, in the Nepali game, it, it's him. And we need someone who can bring, like it's not the job of a coach to bring the country together or the cricketing community together, but he's he's done that in terms of, you know, his controllables around around the team. But um, yeah, one of those names that have been been mentioned out in internet land is, is Lance Klusner, who's 
done quite a bit of coaching around the world, not not any in associate cricket. You just just hope whatever happens that the panel interviewing are really working through or identified pros and cons, but you know the real benefits and features of these. I sounds like an insurance policy, but the, of these coaches that are coming in for what it's going to mean for Nepal cricket and to actually fit into what they want to be, rather than Nepal trying to fit the coach that they want. And look. We know with with anything with Nepal that nothing is ever simple with the, the size of the the board and whatnot. We and we just hope that the, the best coach comes through this. But um, yeah, like I said, Pubadu just seems like the, the the best option there. But um, but who knows if they find someone better, then uh, then good luck to them. But uh, he's got my vote as well. We we keep endorsing candidates, don't we? <laughs> we'll keep our ear to the floor in regards to the Nepali coaching situation, and you will hear it from us. First, once that is announced, some news that did come out this week as well. Uh, we have a Commonwealth Games 2022 structure lined up. It is a little bit complicated, so you might have to stay with us here for a few moments as we try and explain it. But it will be an eight-team tournament. The top six rankings, as per the ICC rankings, plus England will qualify for the tournament. Now, things get a little bit hairy here in terms of the West Indies. Now, if the West Indies are within that top six, which they are at the moment, and that is unlikely to change due to the lack of cricket that will be played over the next year or so, there will be a West Indies qualifier with the winner of that competing at the tournament, at the games. So we could see the likes of a Jamaica, a Barbados, uh, a team from that part of the world compete and take that spot. Just an eight-team tournament, which means the other qualifier... There will only be one team coming out of that looking like countries like Pakistan, for instance. Northern Ireland will will most likely have a team there as well. Scotland, Bangladesh, PNG, Samoa, etc. So it is a rather complicated situation here, Tim, in terms of the qualifier and the issue of the West Indies. But we will have another global tournament and, well, a a somewhat global games with uh, cricket once again in it. Yes, it was... um patron and friend of the podcast Andrew Nixon that's in that read into correctly the statement by the ICC saying that the West Indies don't fall within that top eight that they will compete in the the global qualifier from which the winner of the Caribbean series will go through which seems there are words um, lacking um, logic there so I'm, I'm hoping that the release was simply wrong and it was you know if they fall back it would be the the winner from the Caribbean T20s that would go into the the playoff but it was interesting it's probably the first time I've really taken notice of which teams will have a chance and to see Tom Grunshaw's piece on a see that went up on on thursday about that you know names that would be kind of there or thereabouts in their regions but all of a sudden it could potentially be in the spotlight here yeah samoa as an example with regina Lilly, who I'm, I'm really excited to see with the potential of her playing against a more fancied opposition it's always carrying the team on her back so it might be the same again but i'd really love to see her on good pitches against good bowlers uh, and, and uganda there as well and but the, yeah the leewas you know were one one game away from the world cup so they're, they're not to be um, underestimated either but it, it is a real opportunity here outside of those those global qualifiers that we've seen in the women's game recently for the the global events to see this it's going to be a great chance to see some of these teams playing against each other that we wouldn't otherwise so a bit like the the world cup qualifier in dundee in 2019 we're probably going to get a lot more from a an emerging cricket point of view out of this qualifying event um and hopefully you know who knows who's going to be funding it if it's going to be streamed etc but i think it's going to be really exciting to see some of these teams play on that scale against these teams for the first time yeah i think you're right i think the qualifier you know obviously from a emerging cricket perspective will probably be almost the, the main event for us but just going through some of these permutations with the West Indies looking at when the West Indies domestic qualifier is 
due to be held. It'll be before the main qualifier. So if the West Indies did fall out of the, the top six rankings, they'd end up having a domestic qualifier where one of the teams, let's say Jamaica, wins. And then they need to assemble for the main qualifier to get to the game. So all the all the players who've just been beaten will now be trying to help their, uh, their rivals to qualify and then they'll be uh, cast off like a, a reverse Voltron when uh, the West Indies or, you know, the, the component nation goes to the Commonwealth Games. So... Look, I saw that those in the show notes and I, I need to congratulate you. The reverse Voltron, I'm glad that you got there. That's, that, that is amazing. You know, and I thought I came up with some random references, but I reckon we could get Voltron and Captain Planet into this, but congratulations on that. <laughs> well, I mean, if you want to really get Captain Planet, you've got the domestic West Indies qualifier has the Leeward and Windward Islands, who are both made up of several other smaller nation groups. Um, and if one of those... Windward or Leeward Islands wins the domestic qualifier, the ICC and the Commonwealth Games then decide which of the component nations of that conglomerate wins through. So you've got sort of three levels of of combined teams here. But yeah, I think that whole situation with the West Indies is quite interesting and obviously it's it's a bit of a, a moot point that there's almost no women's cricket going to be played between now and the cutoff date, so it's not too much of a problem. But it, it just speaks to I don't know. I feel like a lot of the time these regulations get put in and no one really sits through and thinks about the convoluted permutations that might end up happening. And so you you could end up with something ridiculous happening. And, you know, the boundary count pack is probably the most uh, the most egregious example of that. Don't remind me. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's just a sort of case of, oh, well, that'll never happen. We don't need to worry about it. But it might happen. So you do need to worry about it. And so that's 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 my take on the West Indies situation. But yeah, I'm very excited for, for this whole thing. And even the Commonwealth Games, you know, I told Brooklyn that the Com Games had cricket in it for the first time in ages. And she thought that was interesting. And even some friends who, who don't usually care much about cricket, you know, just the fact that it's in the Commonwealth Games, like, oh, that's interesting. So I think it'll be great for promoting the women's game. And so I'm all for it. And um, yeah, hopefully a bit of a sneaky trial run for the Olympics. Brooklyn is uh, Nick's wife, everyone, and, and she does not like the sport that we <laughs> like. So I think that's just a little bit of context to uh, to, to bring it in that it's – and I, I, I joke, but absolutely. Like I, I like that we're having these conversations now about the Com Games because, you know, as you said, a bit of a trial run. Um, if we get this sorted – look, it's not going to be perfect by any stretch in terms of West Indies countries, but a, a, at least if we can get it, some semblance of, uh, of logic to it all, it's going to be a lot easier, isn't it? So I, I'm not sure whether they thought about it that way, but it should work out quite well like that. But again, this is what happens when you have an 18 competition. I know we talk about this a lot, but the sooner we can make these events a bit bigger and have more from – from regions or take it away from rankings and I know they've done this probably because of a time factor but wouldn't it be a lot better if you had the top let's say three from every region plus a repercharge for the for the 16th spot wouldn't that be a lot easier um, rather than doing it this way but anyway look it's happening and I'm uh, looking forward to it let's just hope that the powers that be are tagged in the conversation and they can see this tournament play out and hopefully you know, some Olympic participation down the line would ensue. But we did talk about a lot of women's matches in the the recent, well, in the near future, postponed or pushed back for COVID and other reasons. We've seen another pullout this week. The Ireland-Scotland bilateral series, which was to be played in Lamunga, is no longer. Scotland pulling the pin at the 11th hour. Ireland looking a little bit disappointed with that outcome, unfortunately. But yeah, I think from, from everyone's perspective here, not a great result. We know that, that COVID's still rife in, in Europe especially, but to have that pulled just so close to it 
going on, Tim. It's uh, yeah, disappointing for everyone involved. I think. Yeah, look, it's not being there. It's tough to make a call, but to know how much has changed in the days and hours before, and the the days and weeks in Scotland to mean that you pull out a day before going on a tour. I think you could tell the tone in some of the communications for Cricket Island how they felt about it, but it's tough not being there to really have an opinion beyond reading the room from what's going on and. You know, anyone who has ever booked a flight and then pulled out the day before, I'm, I'm guessing that these were certain things were booked with a, uh, a full cancellation policy. But oh, look, you saw the disappointment from the tweets of the players and everyone that was prepped, and not not only from us because it was the only well, the first sort of international cricket of, of, of that ilk that had been played for so long. So yeah, look, um, day before flying, um, I think Barry Chambers said, didn't he, in his tweet, you know, well, they could have at least waited till, you know, calling it off when they're on the plane or, um, <laughs> you know, had, had landed. So yeah, look, I'm not sure what this means for the future and hopefully the relations between both cricket bodies are okay, but um, yeah, disappointing for, for well, everyone concerned, especially the players. Yeah, it's frustrating, but I mean, I don't know, it's hard to know. Yeah, what changed in Scotland so dramatically on that particular day that they had to cancel the whole thing? I don't know, but yeah, I don't know. Are they are they just blaming the coronavirus for something that they they wanted to get out of anyway? That's that's a theory, I guess. I don't know. It is disappointing just from a fan's perspective because I was I was keen to see how they how they went. You know, the mm, so their favourites. Yeah, the Bryce sisters had a fantastic time in the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy in Ireland. We're missing a few key players, so it would have been a, a good opportunity to knock off uh, a full member opposition and um, climb up that ranking chart that we that we just talked about. Yeah, and I, I sort of wonder because you're going to Lamangi, you're not you're not flying into a major city. You're flying to a regional airport, you're in a bus, and then. Lamanga into the controlled hotel into the ground and you know it's not like you have tens of thousands of people there holidaying um for the for the, the games that you're there for so you know must be a good reason um and it's and it's disappointing you know they they're saying it's postponed like any of these things are always postponed they're never cancelled so hoping that that can get up again running soon because i guess that's the advantage of going to spain there's not gonna be too many days of the year that um, the weather won't be perfect for cricket there so hopefully that can get get back on track soon You're listening to the Merton Cricket Podcast. I'm Jared Kimber. I am sure that this is Asif Kareem's favourite cricket podcast. Well, unless you abstained from social media in the last week, you would have seen a post from Dutch fast bowler Paul van Merkeren highlighting the changes this year has had on all of us. Paul revealed on the original date of the T20 World Cup final that instead he's set to get through the Northern Hemisphere winter months by working as an Uber Eats driver. We caught up with Paul for a full-length interview for next week, but here's what he had to say about the post that went around the world. Um, it was just a simple, light-hearted tweet, to be fair. We just um, you know, saw, saw a tweet on, on social media about the T20 World Cup, and I thought, you know... Let's pretend the Dutchie was playing in this final and um, how things can change. And that sort of got, yeah, very big, very quickly. Um, but, you know, it's all good and all the very positive. So uh, it went the right way uh, viral or however you want to call it, instead of sometimes where it can go negative. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny how uh, obviously cricket is that small back home where people think confuse it with polo or with croquet. But I think in other parts of the world, it just shows how, cricket, how big cricket is and how, how much people follow cricket or cricketers. Uh, I think I think it's been a, a, a difficult time for everyone, you know. It's not just us as cricketers. I'm sure there are many people in many different sports who are in a similar situation. But, yeah, uh, obviously it got released at, at the end of 2019 with Somerset and uh, I just wanted to um, 
hopefully use 2020 to sort of earn a new contract at a different county in the UK. But uh, obviously then COVID came along and, uh, you know, not only through international cricket, but also sort of domestic cricket up, uh, up in the air. Um, I think it's been fantastic to see some international cricket and obviously domestic cricket being played around the world, which is fantastic. But, um, you know, Chris, it's been a challenge. And um, uh, I think uh, well, I know for a fact, because I've spoken to all the Dutch guys who are involved in, in the Dutch team at the moment recently. So, uh, you know, it's, it's been tough times for everyone. And, uh, you know, I'm not the only one who's delivering packages or food uh, to sort of pay, the, pay their bills at the end of the month. I've, I've found it very therapeutic work uh, so far so I just jump in the car and it's literally I drive four or five hours and it feels like two or three I, I got a app on my phone so I just listen to some Dutch radio uh, and off I go but um, you know I think I would rather play cricket than, than do this but you know at the same time I'm enjoying it and it's a bit of a, a nice relaxing therapy that's how it feels like to me but yeah obviously I'm a cricketer and I want to play cricket 24-7 and all year round. So, uh, you know, this is just just a temporary sort of uh, uh, period and hopefully the world can get back to normal and can play cricket again. And, uh, you know, not just myself, but all the Dutch guys and, and the guys who play in Orange, hopefully we can go, go out, express ourselves and obviously put a few uh, good performances together, not just uh, for us ourselves, but also for associate cricket and 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 beat some of the bigger bigger teams in the world. As mentioned before, we'll have a full-length interview with Paul van Meekeren next week. But for now, here's part two of our chat with Paul Radley from the National in UAE. Hi, this is Anshi Rath, and you're listening to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. You talked about the outreach efforts to the Arab population and trying to get into that culture. What, I guess, going back to women's cricket, is the, um, you know, conservative, traditional Islamic culture, is that a hindrance, would you say, to, to women's cricket taking off? Or, or is it sort of the separate societies thing again, where the you know, the non-Emirati women can, can kind of do whatever they want in terms of cricket and... Well, basically, the captain of the UAE women's team, she's a fantastic role model, excellent player, off-spinner, batter as well, uh, Hamera Tazneem. She's, um, she's hijabi. Uh, I think she's the only hijabi player in the team, actually, at the moment. She really needs to be pushed out as, you know, this visible face of UAE women's cricket because that would just go to show, no, it, it should not at all be a hindrance whatsoever. She's a brilliant, brilliant role model as well. She speaks brilliantly. She's an excellent player and if they can put her out there and get her seen as this leader for cricket here, I think that would be really beneficial for the game. Do you think that could actually herald it breaking into the Emirati female population? or? or well, she's Indian. In the same way that cricket has broken down the barriers in, in other countries to get females playing cricket, Hong Kong is a great example where, where half the national team are Chinese yeah. and the men's team, you know, we've, we've talked about and lamented the lack of Chinese representation. You know, the Emirati, sort of, are they playing sport? And if so, is cricket a chance? Wow, that's a really good question. I, I, I could compare it to another sport. It's probably a good comparison, actually, because the sports often go together. Certainly in the UK, you have the posh kid sports, cricket and rugby go together. Rugby union, that is. Here, UA rugby have made a really big attempt, to be honest, since they set up their federation. They went from a region-wide federation, so all the countries around here had this one team, and they're all expats. Then they got divided up by world rugby. So the UAE board took over in about 2010, I think it was. 
they made real strides in getting Emiratis into the game. So much so that in Ashraf now, they had a little bit of difficulty getting um, retaining male players in the system. But they've got this brilliant flagship. It's only maybe 15, 20 girl players still in their system, flagship team. And they're absolutely brilliant. So I've seen it's one of my favourite sites. It's going up to rugby one time have a, a story and seeing two Dajabi girls sat on the sideline not being pushed into it not being this is a box ticking exercise this will get a sponsorship if we've got girls playing our sport these were girls who a rugby training session and were sat watching the men's domestic game the club, club standard quite good and they had their phones out following the action so that they could learn the game there if they can do it in rugby they should definitely be able to do it in Oh, I think they're cricket-wise, UAE are a sleeping giant. The, the women's game, after seeing the talent and the, the qualifiers, like we've talked about a lot before, but you know the, the regional qualification may be their blocker. But if Thailand are going to be straight into global qualifying events, I won't be surprised if, if UAE, the next team that we see see emerging from the women's game, that's that's great to hear. I, you know, and that little anecdote, I guess I'm hoping it's got a sort of a broader integration uh, movement within the UAE. But there's an altruistic hope, but also you know, it's just a great empowerment vehicle in, in a place like the UAE. So I'll be I'll be watching that closely. And following on from that, you know, what's the outreach efforts to the Emirati population? Obviously, we've talked a bit about some of the guys who've uh, you know accidentally come across it because of contact with the subcontinental population. But you know, what is the board and the administration doing to, to try and you know, really get into the the local population? Because obviously, we all know that's where most of the money is in the UAE. Yeah, that's very true. Now, it's flip-flopped over the years. I must say they've had attempts driven by the Emirati players that were in the system to try and spread the game. And uh, one guy in particular, uh, the guy, he was so into it by his Sri Lankan au pair that he taught his teachers at his school <laughs> when he when he was still a teenager so that, they, so that he could try and spread it that way. Unfortunately, it didn't last long. He got a bit disillusioned with everything. Uh, like I said before, they targeted uh, specifically at Alain. They managed to get a sponsor for that. This was probably going back a couple of years now, two, three years. It's just a matter of persisting with these things and that's probably a big problem that's been the case over the years over here when they've tried it's been through someone's goodwill to do it and they haven't managed to persist with it and then just general frustration with not seeing success has meant that they've had to just nix it or you know look look elsewhere really at where they're going to divert their funds so in terms of a long-term plan for it i don't know perhaps i'm speaking out of turn i know i know they've got a really good development manager called andy russell who um you know he's got a lot under his remit that, he, that he's trying to do and, and maybe maybe this is something that he's got his eye on and, and he is and it is you know it is working at the moment but you're just not seeing the fruits of that further up the pyramid just yet so i couldn't really comment too much further on that well, we've, we've got a question from uh, one of our dear friends, Nishad Rego. Um, keen to hear more about whether the government is thinking about naturalization pathways for elite sportsmen and about whether you have insights into what it's like for these players to represent the country for over a decade and still be reliant on keeping their jobs to remain in the country. Really interesting question that because they have just amended the law. I think I'm not 100% okay with the wording of it, but basically there's this brilliant footballer, Argentinian-born Sebastian Tagliabue. He's never played for Argentina, only played down the leagues over in Argentina. But he's travelled the world, been top scorer in the UAE top division here for years. Very popular man as well. Just so happened that the rules got changed and he was allowed to be naturalised. He's got a passport and a couple of other guys have that. So the first time this happened, obviously, something that happens relatively frequently in a lot of other countries and certainly in countries around the region here, I think. Um, well, certainly the UAE team 
doesn't have anything like the profile that football does here. So from an admin point of view, I don't know whether that makes it more easy or less easy if you wanted to naturalise a player, get him through. I don't, it's, yeah, it's strange that Ahmed Raza take, for instance, the UAE captain currently, born in Sharjah, lived his whole life here, very rarely been to Pakistan where he is Pakistan passport holder and a Pakistan national of, and his father lived here for years as well. Amjad Javid, who was the previous captain, his granddad lived here, I think, and then his dad lived here for 50 years, still got Pakistani passports. It's something that's unique to this area, and it certainly doesn't mean that Ahmed Razad feels any less like he belongs to this country. I suppose it does, actually, having said that, because looks at his passport and it says he's from Pakistan, but this is his country and he regards it as such. He'll always talk about this place. <laughs> in actual fact, he got banned for, what was it, a couple of months, three months, something like that, um, two years ago, for slagging off Pakistan when they went and um, toured there. <laughs> well, he, he slagged the ground. Sorry, yeah, you're quite right, he did. He, he slagged the, the, the groundmanship at, uh, in the, was the Asia? Developing Nations, is that what it's called? That's one. No, no, it was the, oh, geez, the emerging, we should know this because the emer- emerging Asia Cup. Emerging? <laughs> Literally in the, exactly. You know, you, you Google emerging cricket and that comes up. It's like, we've got to beat the emerging Asia Cup. <laughs> and they were ahead. Oh, there was some, I think, it, was there a DLS some situation there as well yes they needed that we might have been against hong kong but they needed that win because they had a great tournament to get through and you know a bit like uh certain ground in canada that uh, certain people talk about about their drainage <laughs> you know if it hadn't have been for really poor drainage and they argued that uh the covers didn't get out there soon enough etc and exactly i think three of them yes yeah, so rowan's never had the captaincy stints as a result of that um rami shazad and ahmed raza and it was i personally felt it was so ott they they were just it was just frustration they weren't swearing there was no invective or anything in there um it was just born from passion for winning the game and, and get bettering themselves as cricketers having more chances you understand why they were frustrated perhaps you know they could have kept it in-house and not done it on twitter but i, th- I thought it was really harsh and it's had a big effect on them rohan never got the captaincy back since and he was doing pretty well and then yeah they had a couple of months out well to my mind it was it was daft really that they were banned I know that we started there about Ahmed Raza, we'll come back to that, but I guess that speaks to, at the time, how important the PCB and Cricket Emirates relationship was, wasn't it? Totally. When the PCB had the OAE as their, well, it wasn't even their second home, it was their, it was their first home and how times have changed. But, you know, you, you put that in light, someone talking about, you know, the ground not being looked after and three-month bans slapped, you know, you expected maybe a couple of games. But um, anyway, you were talking about Ahmed Raza and him feeling like it was, well, that's his home and it's so similar to a lot of the Hong Kong stories, you know, a Jamie Atkinson or, you know, an Man Rath and they talk about being from Hong Kong but they're not Hong Kongers because a Hong Konger is, is Chinese. It's an interesting juxtaposition of home to some people, but what home is to others. Yeah, and you're talking about expat hubs here as well, like Hong Kong and UAE share very similar traits. And if we're having this conversation against somebody who had that in um, the UK, this whole debate would be racist. But it's just the way things are over here. And obviously, same in Hong Kong, you might probably, if we looked at Singapore, it might be it might be very similar because they're places of a, of a similar nature. But as I was saying, Amadraza, this is his country. 
why, why wouldn't it be, to be honest? Well, that's a hard thing. You know, we're talking about as two of us, uh, at least here, that have, have chosen to move overseas and become, you know, it's like this dirty word. It's like we have to find a new word for it, but, but, <laughs> but being expats. But, you know, we're people that have chosen to move. These are kids that were born in these countries. Totally. And for someone to look me in the face and tell me I'm an expat or I don't belong where I'm from, yeah, that just sort of flies in the face of everything that, well, especially now we're being taught about, you know, what the world is about. Don't want to get too kind of preacher here but sort of citizens of the world first and sort of everything else sort of falls in it's like, so how it must be so hard to be Ahmed Raza I remember him being in the press conference during the, the World Cup qualifier I think it was their last game in Dubai and I think somebody asked a question about the fixing scandal and they were shut down and you're only supposed to keep on the game anyway but he speaks so eloquently and you can hear the passion in his voice and the intelligence yeah, he's someone who should be a, you know someone that the UAE should be holding up and saying this is one of ours you know he's the champion of the new insert nation name here likewise with an Anchi Rath or a Mariko Hill in Hong Kong rather than the opposite of like oh, well you know they're not of the the local population that I don't have an answer here it's just something that really frustrates me that you know this this is where sport should be the vanguard of society taking a step forward and yet we're still having these conversations about how a kid grows up of generations and and yet is challenged on what is home and doesn't have a passport from where he is this is not all a bit idealistic when you're in Hong Kong and you were trying to promote the game and get more people to it did you use it was Roy Lamtam wasn't it was that his name oh that was before my time he played in the in the Asia Cup in, in 2008 and I've, I've gone through a few rabbit holes in my time on, on YouTube and Ian Chappell actually made a joke during their Asia Cup match Oh, and he's the Chinese player and making a joke that he's the one, the actual one from Hong Kong. He's more Thai than he is Chinese. He's actually got royal blood and that's a conversation for another day. But, and even, and Mark Chapman is the story. You know, his, his mum's background is, is actually Seychelles Chinese rather than Hong Kong Chinese. Huh. Didn't know that. Yeah, there's a there's a whole pathway to him being there as well, and it's the way that sort of people kind of peer back onto the chance of celebrating. Oh wait, there is somebody that you know is like most of you. So yeah, is it something that people jump on absolutely for the good of the sport? But really, the reverse should be true that it's the champion of integration mm-hmm. and how people are there and proud of the country they're playing for. But I guess that goes to the heart of the whole expat conversation that we've had every week that we see on Twitter every week, and I've <laughs> even saw a response response to uh to the global game article nick wrote for the icc about oman saying oh well i guess they'll make them a test nation now that they've got this investment in their expat team it's like oh what's the point guys you know there's something bigger at play here <laughs> no sorry well, i didn't actually mean it in that I, I, obviously i meant you're completely correct it's just like i was thinking do you have to have some if you're trying to promote the game as you obviously were in your role there do you have to have someone that just looks right is that the only way you can do it Sorry, to answer your question is that do you have to? I don't think you do. I think there needs to be a balance. And the beauty of the game that was in Hong Kong is that the success had come from kids that had grown up there but weren't necessarily of the majority population. But I think it's it's how you frame the game and the, the part the game plays in society. You know, I think that's the important bit. Unless you're in the schools, and unless kids are seeing or at least hearing about you or you're having a positive effect, unless you have a, a society that's so 
focused on success at, at, at the Olympics? There's another question again that we didn't get to answer in, in a Hong Kong sense. Unless you're part of the society and part of the community, then it, it doesn't matter who's there because there's, there's so many other mainstream sports right now vying for everyone's attention anyway. Unless you're actually part of the community and successful and have you tapped into sort of mainstream interest in, in society, then it doesn't matter which faces you're putting up on screen. You know, the difference with cricket in, in Hong Kong being the, the most successful major team sport, yet on the football side, Hong Kong was not great. Like China wasn't great, but the fact that Hong Kong was able to block China or at least attempt to block China in their, in their World Cup qualification <laughs> with a multicultural team of qualifiers that had come to Hong Kong to play in the pro leagues. You know, when China made a quip in a poster about being them, you know, you've got to watch the Hong Kong team because they're, I think it was black, yellow, green and, and, and red, basically saying they're from everywhere. Hong Kong grabbed onto that and said, how dare you be so racist? We're proud of our multicultural. But really it was just, it was one of those things, well, you know, well, we've got something now we've got to stick to beat you with. And rather than that being because they believed in that, the multicultural nature of the side, it was something that they were able to use against the Chinese. And that's the difference. There are not enough Hong Kongers caring about cricket because China aren't that, aren't at that similar level. Well, to kind of pick up on trying to promote the game, the ace in UAE's hand, at least seeing you know from, from the outside, is that Sharjah's hosted more one-day international games than any other venue in in history has there been an opportunity missed there in terms of actually promoting the game sure enough it's one thing to host international cricket and 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 high level international cricket at that but has emirati cricket kind of dropped the ball in trying to promote the game maybe further by i suppose jumping on that wave of having international cricket in the country well that's a difficult one to answer because i, I suppose the simple answer is yes but they're not the only ones a lot of stuff has come here down the years. Like sports, all different sports. Like football's had the Asia Cup was here a couple of years ago. Um, they're already preaching to the converted there. I can use that phrase because football is the game of of Emirati people. Cricket is, I don't know. It's it's difficult. Why? Which, if you just think about the makeup of the population, sort of ten to twenty percent Emirati. So. If cricket is mostly dominated by workers from, you, you, you know, from the sector of community that makes up the majority of the population anyway, then, I mean, certainly bringing great cricket here all the time frequently, it's a good advert for the sport, so long as the people you want to see it and you want to bring to the sport are seeing it. But because there's football on the other channel anyway, that doesn't mean they're going to go to the cricket ground to watch a sport they don't understand. Um, so just having great cricket here isn't enough to bring new fans to the sport. It's always going to be the same, you know, the same people that follow the sport unless you actively do something for it. So in answer to your question, yeah, probably. But it's sort of easy to see why it's happened that way. I think also, too, that having Pakistan take their games back home as well, you kind of lose that opportunity to at least have some sort of cricket in the area. But yeah, as you said, if you're only if you're only appealing to people who are already interested in it, then it it doesn't really make much of a difference. I guess the maybe one of the not not counterpoints, but one of the other things to take into consideration, just thinking about Tim's point about the you know the multiculturalism. You know, people it is often hard to to get into something if you can't see yourself in it. You know, and, and that's that's where having the the Hong Kong Dragons and and all those sorts of initiatives comes in. You know, if you, if you don't see people like you doing something, there is a bit of a barrier there in in terms of um you know, in terms of interest, I guess. But it's the same in Hong Kong, you know, and and that's the problem. You know, the Chinese. And they're Hong Kong Chinese, but Chinese will see it 
uh, it's a brown man's game because they're all there yelling and screaming and and let nobody else is on the field and nobody else can get on the field. It's it's tough, you know. You kind of take the Tim Cutler multicultural dream of you know sport being that what what is leading them, but then the reality is, well, why do I want to be part? Well, a I don't feel like I can be part of that. But then I, I thought you were going to kind of then go to, but then they see the IPL and see the millions and see the adulation. But they don't see that. No, they don't see that as um, they, they they see the IPL, this whiz bang thing, as as a business proposition to invest in. They don't see it themselves as being one of the players. That that's not of interest to them. Okay, which I guess there's a there's a point to that. Can, can you tap into that and make it a, an investment as opposed to you know that which they're still part of? Like, do you kind of draw their interest that way, and 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 think well. You turn it into a business and who knows the interest will follow. And if the interest is there, then that will kind of eke into investment in terms of stadia and development. And all of a sudden you've got all these stadiums popping up because it's kind of being fed in a way that we'd probably go, if they don't want to play, what does it, what does their interest matter? But if their interest actually brings engagement and funds into it, it's a, you know, it's not the game that we kind of grew up with. It's tough. Yeah. Now, on the show, Paul, you're more than aware that we... He, he actually listens to the show, though. <laughs> exactly. This is the best part. We ask a question to every single one of our guests. If you could change a law in the game of cricket, what would it be and why? Yeah, I was thinking about this earlier on because I knew you'd ask. And honestly, I don't get that exercised about any any law. Nothing sticks out to me. And I know you've had the you've had double play, haven't you? But a lot of people say double the double play thing. Mm. I quite like that. I, I think that would be good. Anything that creates a bit more chaos and also shows off a fielder's um, skill, it would be good. Um, so I was thinking of one in indoor cricket. The ball is always live, mm. um, and I've thought quite a long time about this and thought it probably wouldn't actually work at all. But I'd like to see them give that a go of the ball always being live, just for one particular instance, and that's when Jimmy Anderson's getting to the top of his bowling run when he's got his back turned. Ravi Ashwin stealing a single. It would be the apocalypse. It would be brilliant to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So that's like the combination of everything. It's like the du- yeah, yeah. Mancad double play. That same kind of still in play, Mancad, and, and then Spirit of Cricket is like this spectre at the yeah, yeah. at the top of the isosceles triangle. We have got these other ones down here, and it's just this spectre of like, oh no, you can't run, you can't run someone out when they're you know tapping the the pitch down. <laughs> this just occurred to me. What it's it's not related to the law change, but what's the situation in the UAE with indoor cricket? Do they play it at all? Like, because obviously the the air conditioned halls seem like that would be ideal. Oh, it's huge, massive. We've we've had more clicks about indoor cricket than any other cricket over here. Well, that's not strictly true at all. But when the World Cup was here, we were stunned by how big it went on the internet because it's a really big sport over here. For it fits with the sort of business day. It's sort of um, people that don't take it too seriously. Businesses have it like as team building things. And in the summer, obviously, summer's so hot, so cricketers are just completely avid about the game, and there's loads of them go and play indoor cricket so it's massive over here it's a real sort of phenomenon over here indoor cricket and they did quite well in in the indoor cricket world cup as well are they aligned i think singapore is one of the few associations that are are run by the 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 main association and an australian outset of comes under but are they aligned to emirates cricket board or are they completely separate i'm pretty sure they just run as a team and maybe emirates cricket board just sign it off but they run as a group of mates basically and they're pretty good and a few of them have played for UAE national team. Vic Crichetti's a good, good player and a good organizer. 
that's funny, isn't it? Like you talked about them playing as in cricketers in the UAE playing in like 50 degree heat on sand fields on concrete pitches and and, and here's our kind of brainwave well indoor cricket could be the thing that makes cricket it's like but people are already playing and loving cricket isn't it? they you know it's, it's Hong Kong were thinking about trying to find indoor areas to get people playing because again not a lot of space people weren't used to being outside and it wasn't a very you know, a, a, sort of a, a Chinese uh, viewpoint of getting out in the sun and, and having your kids out there for hour, hours on end so a great start but it's like well kids are already playing in, in 50 degree heat in the UAE you know it, they don't need indoor cricket do they it's massive though <laughs> it's really big it's funny I love it like the idea of you know having gone to what's the uh, the shopping centre with the ski run all of them right yeah amazing and they've got penguins and they have world leading penguin research in a shopping mall that's where I was actually when I was thinking through the law change <laughs> <laughs> Looking at the penguins. <laughs> oh, to spend a couple of seconds in your head at that moment. <laughs> Which, yeah, geez, the, the contradictions and yet being there and going through and them talking about how environmentally minded they say they are and that everything they, they do is carbon neutral and yet you've got the Olympic ski team or at least the attempted Olympic qualification team for the UAE training there. I, I just find... it. There are lots of words, but fascinating will probably probably sit with. But but the idea yeah, of indoor cricket as well, being getting more kids into it. But uh, the answer to your rule change is the ball is all always live. Yeah. So that means if a wicketkeeper takes a ball and when it would normally be dead and is underarming the ball back to the bowler and someone fumbles it and the batters take a single, that counts as a run, but it doesn't count as a de- delivery. Is, it, is that what happens? Ah, I hadn't thought that far into it. Yeah, that's when it would get tricky. Is that what happens in indoor cricket? You know, you can run someone out if they're out of the crease at any time and likewise i was that kid this will surprise a lot of people but i, I took a sneaky run as the ball was being underarm backwards but that, that doesn't count as a ball then that does it that's just a run that gets added no because the other issue that comes up with man cads is what ball do you actually put it in for the fall of wicked oh that's true yeah oh that'll be tricky um duckworth lewis we're ahead we're ahead yeah <laughs> man cards are quite actively encouraged in um indoor cricket but you get punished if you miss so if you bring your arm over and like try and sneakily get the batter in one go and you miss, you get punished like no ball or something or you get punished if you run. Four of us in the room, put your hand up if you've taken a wicket with a man cat in indoor cricket. Okay, I'm the only one. Okay, we'll move on this conversation. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. That's... Sorry, Tim, on your own. <laughs> well, Paul, it's been great to have you on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Finally, uh, we've been keeping up with all your work uh, at the National as well, promoting the game in, in UAE and, and talking about cricket all over the world. So it's been great to have your insight into UAE and beyond. Thank you for joining us on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having us on, lads. A huge thank you again to Paul Radley at the National in UAE for joining us on the Emerging Cricket Podcast over the last two weeks. Make sure to subscribe to the Emerging Cricket Podcast if you haven't done so already so you can tune in as soon as it drops every week. Pass the pot around and make sure to give us a five-star review. If you want to support us financially, go to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Emerging Cricket where you can support us from as little as $2 US a month. For now, on behalf of myself, Daniel Beswick, and the boys, Nick Skinner and Tim Cutler, see you next week.